Hello, welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and today's guest is one of Australia's most respected and influential poets, Jill Jones. Jill's work has won a number of awards, including the Victorian Premier's Prize for Poetry, the Kenneth Slesser Prize, the Whitman Press Manuscript Prize, and the Mary Gilmore Award, just to name a few. She's the author of 10 previous full-length works, as well as a number of chapbooks, and has been film reviewer, journalist, book editor, and arts administrator, and uh, as well as poet in residence in 2014 at Stockholm University. And she's a member of the J.M. Kutsi Center for Creative Practice at the University of Adelaide. Jill Jones, welcome. Thank you, Maggie. So before we begin chatting, um, can I get you to just open with a poem? Yeah, okay. And anything you like. I can prompt you. I have one ready, but uh, if you want to pick one, that's fine too. Um, I'll read one towards the end called Mighty Tree. Perfect. Thanks. Okay, then. Mighty Tree. I know what I dream. It's impossible. There are no ghosts. They follow me. The bus stop isn't a dream. It's a mighty tree. There is no campfire here. The dust is burning and all the exhaust. The tickets are burning. To dance with a ghost is real. They catch on the occult lint of night time. At the bus stop, other things grow. I'd rather walk back tonight. It's red and yellow planets. It's luminous dome. The day is more tenebrous than a dream. Oh, mighty tree, fall on me. Make me a legend or a nest. The magpies can pluck my dream. The ghosts can have the rest. Mm. It was a good choice, <laughs> um, partly because I think it picks up on a, a number of the themes in the book, um, the the whole notion of, I guess, alternative realities, day, day night, dream, real. But talk to me a little about the mighty tree itself. It's, a, it's somewhat metaphorical. It's somewhat metaphorical, but also um, like a lot of the things in the book, it simply relates to my suburban environment here in Adelaide where, um, and I suspect some of these mighty trees, and they are mighty trees, um, were planted rather than um, what you might call native grown. But there are these enormous gum trees um, that populate parts of the neighbourhood I'm in. And some of them I see right across from my bus stop. Of course, the poem goes in another direction. Um, so... In my work, I always, even though clearly there are sort of symbolic and metaphorical elements, to me they're always materially related to what's around me or where I've been or perhaps what other people have told me as well. And for me, that's an important thing. Mm. Yes, I mean, trees themselves are such, you know, they're such an interesting thing to work into a poem. I mean, it may seem... I guess it may seem common, but, you know, we're finding out so much about, I guess, about the natural world, about the life of trees, that um, it, it almost seems to me that, that, that they're sort of a fertile source. Exactly. And um, when you consider um, what happens around trees, that they provide homes, um, shelter, mm. um, watch posts for birds, um, and also they're continuously in endangered by um, humans or indeed just simply their own ageing processes. We had a tree, beautiful tree next door to our place and it's simply got some kind of disease that certain gum trees get 
um, and it wasn't filled, but it was sort of, it's, it's a ghost tree now, let's just say that. So that um, their very presence is growing things, but living and dying things like the rest of us. Yeah, it's a fertile field, and I usually, this tree, this mighty tree is metaphorical, so it doesn't get a name, but um, I usually try and name the birds and the animals and the trees around me as much as I can, and also acknowledge their actual ways of being and their life cycles so that the bird in the poem isn't just the, the metaphorical symbolic bird although it is that as well but it's actually a real thing a real um, non-human being that's in and around and amongst us yes and I, I suppose there's some humility involved as well like we have to put aside this sense of being kind of master of the of the world to enable us to really understand that these other living things have alternative lives that are valid. Yeah, yeah, and they've had to make even alternative alternative lives because of the impact that um, we've had on their environments. Mm. Um, but also, not all of them are, but many of them are extraordinarily res resilient, and um, there they are. Um, I've read people criticise poets for always writing about birds and as though these were these sort of ideal birds set in a pastoral, you know, poetic um, land somewhere else. But in fact, um, I'm writing exactly what I see and hear, and then it goes into other things as well. But um, it, it, it's real stuff. It's not something that I've just made up and to be terribly lyrical mm. or something like that. Yes, in fact, I, I think, I mean, over the years, and I guess your writing is probably, um, from what I've read of it, has changed quite a lot as well, but the, the whole notion of um, of writing about the environment, of course, as the, the world becomes increasingly um, endangered, and as we're losing species, etc., you know, the whole notion of writing about the environment is less and less pastoral and more and more political, perhaps. It's certainly political, um, although I think... You know, you can see even back um, into some of the older poets. It, it, if it wasn't political, at least it was concerned that um, these things um, are endangered. You can even see it in some of the romantic poets like John Clare, mm. and yeah, to an extent even with sorts and people like that. But but yes, now um, it's political, and also I guess it's less concerned about centering that lyric I in the poem, but saying, well, you know, we're here in amongst everything else. We are the environment, not there's that lovely landscape over there, I'll write about it. But, you know, we are the environment, um, we are nature. And therefore, to think about how to write thinking along those kinds of lines, yeah. Yes, and I see this in a lot of your work too, this notion, I guess, of language and the language of this world as well as being not solely word-oriented, but there being other ways of speaking or other ways of, of communicating. Yes, um, and obviously you can see that a lot in this book that I've taken various texts in trying to look at the language I'm using, which is kind of a Australian version of English, um, and what I can do with it to try and you know, make poems that aren't just um, saying the same old, same old, but also um, acknowledging that language can do a lot of different things. And I guess that's always the strength of poetry is that um, it can be on the one hand um, apparently simple, 
but also it can engage with the complexities of language and syntax and even the structure of words, you know, syllables and uh, those kinds of things. And also um, uh, because poems use the, the line break and enjambment and all of those um, technicalities, well, I don't see them as technicalities. They're parts of the poem, and yes, you can use those to point out that language can do a lot more than just say a simple declarative sentence or a question or I don't know something like that. Mm, yes, I mean uh, the the whole notion of being on the brink, and and it seems to me, you know, with the title of the book and the, the way in which the poems come together. Um, is one of the, I guess, to me, is one of the um, the key things that comes out across the poems: the impact of climate change and and many other brinks as well. Yes, um, I am sorry, I've had a bit of water there. Um, yeah, I mean, the, obviously, the title was quite deliberate, but. It's not simply, I mean, yes, we are on um, the brink of monumental change. Well, uh, some people would even maintain we've gone past that brink and that may be correct now. Um, but also on the brink of political change, of social change. But also, I guess, there's, you know, not unsurprisingly, personal stuff in the book as well. Um, for instance, um, and I noticed in your review that you looked at the first poem, and no one needs to know these things, but um, I personally suffer from a condition called positional vertigo. Um, uh, yeah, and with vertigo, you're always on the brink. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not something that's going to kill me or anything, but it's just something that goes on in my inner ear. And so there's always that personal... Um, element in it and that's a very material thing but I guess there's also the personal brutishness of um, relationship in general um, an ageing and that's, life change yeah, yes yeah. all of that kind of stuff and I guess I wanted to capture brutishness in its many guises um, and and to use the language which sometimes you know does move into the sort of more traditionally lyric um, or then to challenge that through, um, you know, various syntactical moves um, and complications, or even, yeah, just using the white space and letting the page itself, um, even if it's not a textual sign, there's another sign on the page, perhaps allowing the reader to fill it in for themselves or simply just to be there to not be filled with text mm -hmm. but with another sign. Yes, can, can I ask you to read a poem which for me um, kind of typifies a lot of those things that we've been talking about, which is um, Self and Nothingness. Um, it's page 15. Page 15, okay. Here we go. Uh, do you want to, uh, 14 and 15, just read the whole thing? Yeah, sorry, 14 and 15, yeah, just read the whole thing. Yeah, okay, yeah. Self and Nothingness. I'm running all over the world. I'm running within sight of what might happen. I'm running with a crazy kind of make-do. The new plants waver in cold evening. It's cooler than when I left these things, these ideas, in rooms. Is there an act to it? If I could shift my head without the world shifting. It can't be that hard to look up into the trees. I know they're there. I've argued over silence. 
I've collected nonsense. I crave nothingness. I know it doesn't exist, that it does. I'm a source of virtual violence. What senses are, I'm not sure, or how many. I smell strange, but that could be the way air is. The craft is the devil. Disquiet a relief. Jokes become bullet points in my life, an account explained in columns. Perhaps the essence is dissolved, become paler. Whether to drink it, whether to pour it, whether to watch something else drink it. Perhaps it's all a setup. It doesn't matter what it is. Everything in my mouth cracks like a sweet. I'm a project as I scour the streets for what it's worth, and I'm looking for ways to write back the damage. So if I were to choose the the poem that galvanises the whole book or that it all swivels around, I, I think this is the one that I would probably choose. I mean, you could possibly do that for all of them and change the focus but for me this really picked up every brink um that the book covers oh right yes well I suppose it does when I think about it um and uh, yeah that's partly why I did put it towards the beginning because it certainly has um that um I but it's it's a shifting kind of I in it and it's asking a lot of questions and there's a lot of self-questioning that's going on and I think if you read the book you'll see a lot of that going on as well Um, and that to me was important for my own kind of thinking but also to think out loud about the kinds of questions that maybe I think people might want to ask themselves Um, not that I'm telling people what to think but to perhaps suggest um, it is one way of engaging and dealing with um, confronting uh, these issues, trying to change them in yourself as well as out there in the world. Mm. And of course, I guess the other thing is that we're, again, repeating what I said earlier, we are part of the world and it's not as though there's me and then everything else, which I thought was important as well. Yes. So how did the collection come together? Did you Do you pull together, in general, do you pull together a manuscript and then submit it somewhere, or was this a commissioned, or um, did you did it just get to a point where you knew you had some theme going on that was cohesive? Um, different manuscripts come together in different ways. Um, this one, um, the, the basis of this was um, some work a lot of which didn't survive into this manuscript, but the basis of it was um, a manuscript I put together some years ago for publication that never went forward. Um, yeah, it was just one of those things. Um, the publisher just stopped publishing poetry, essentially. And I had it with me, and I'd plundered some of the ideas for other manuscripts, but I had this core of an idea um, it wasn't called Brink then, it was called something else, it had various names. But there was always this core. So I just slowly built up from older work, and but particularly stuff I was doing, you know, well, this is going back a couple of years now, of course, um, and yeah, filtered out some of the older stuff and brought it together, and then I just sent it off to Five Islands to see if, um, yeah, they have a call out every year, and I'd sent it off just to see what would happen. Mm. And luckily, they thought it 
was something they wanted to publish, for which I'm very thankful. Though a fantastic team to work for, by the way, I just need to say that. Was it? Is it heavily? I mean, was there a lot of um, editing through it, or, um, or very little? How how much was there? Uh, quite a decent amount of editing, and again, this is why um, I particularly want to thank them, um, particularly Bella Lee and um, Eddie Patterson, particularly Bella, because. Up until recently, most of my books were lightly edited mm. or perhaps edited in an overall sense, but um, they really went into um, the minutiae of you know, lines and words as well as should this poem stay and go, rearranging, etc., etc. Um, and they were nearly all of their suggestions, not every single one, but most of their suggestions I thought were excellent um, they picked up errors, you know, typos, you know, get into even the best prepared manuscript or just suggestions for changing things around. So, um, and I for one welcome that. I know some people, some poets don't like being edited at all, um, but I truly appreciated the um, attentiveness um, they um, expended on this. It was It was really worth... Um, the final product, absolutely. It's amazing the difference from one publisher to another in terms of the amount of um, <laughs> editing that goes on. From with poetry, I think it, maybe it's more consistent with prose, but with poetry, it's sometimes it's total hands off, and sometimes it's yeah, you know, pull it all apart and go through a whole bloodletting. So it's um, quite yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've um, I've got a book coming out later in the year from um, University of Queensland Press, and uh, again. Um, it was a terrific um, experience of both at the copy editing final stage but also at the beginning um, with their um, poetry editor, um, Felicity Punkett, you know, but all along the line there was such tension to detail, such respect for the work um, and it really did cause me to, you know, um, talk to myself about a lot of what was in there, you know, and all for the good. But yes, yeah, sometimes it's incredibly hands off, and you think, hmm, I could have said something. Yeah, that's right. So when you read it later, uh, much later. Yes. Um, oh, so, yeah, you think, hmm, why didn't they talk about it? Query this one. Yeah, I like, mm. I like heavy editing myself too. Um, one of the things that really moved me was this tension, I think, between kind of fierceness and tenderness which seems to be a common, also something that runs through a lot of the poems, that you know, you'll go right to the brink of fierceness and then kind of pull back almost as a, a mindfulness of sensuality, a sort of ten, just a, a tender um, appreciation perhaps for the moment. Oh, um, thanks for that comment because, I, yeah, yeah I, I think in a lot of cases that was... Um, something I was aware of and I think in some other cases possibly not but that's the way it turned it out but um, and I guess from my point of view um, you could be very um, fierce angry doom and gloom about a lot of what's going on and fair enough um, because it's not good but on the other hand whoever we are at the moment wherever we are we've got to live here um, and as well as taking responsibility just accept or even celebrate or just get on with it um, and if you're constantly angry or unhappy 
which I often am, or um, take it out on yourself or wherever, particularly in um, you know, a piece of art like poetry, I feel, other people will have different views on this, but I feel it doesn't really get you that far. It gets you to the angry bit or the sad bit, but then, okay, where do we go now? Yes, it's um, almost the answer, isn't it, <laughs> to the, the question yeah. of what do we do? Well, you know, look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, um, and I mean, this is not a political tract. Um, mm. You know, it's a book of poetry, and, you know, I think poetry can do a lot of different things, and that's why I guess there's a sense of language play in it um, and some of that is um, focused on um, some of the issues for instance the, the lipogrammatic um, poem which loses vowels was an experiment in thinking you know we are losing things all the time so maybe if I do a poem that loses something quite deliberately as a constraint um, could I still write the poem so that's what I did in that particular um um, poem, I mean, it's a long poem, and I guess you could say, um, you know, Track Plenty Brink Yon Much is the title poem. Um, but sometimes you just need to sit still, insofar as one can ever sit still, and just be more accepting or conscious or mindful or tender towards yourself and the rest of the world, and particularly the people and other non-human beings and entities around you. Mm. Could, could I get you to read one of the poems, which I think really typifies this, um, Brushing Yonder, 48? Oh, okay, certainly. That's, um... Uh, sorry, I'm losing it. 48. Uh, there we go. Here we go. Brushing yonder. If you go north, it will get worse. Valleys won't aid you. Sun always goes down. If you go west, you'll stumble. All that reticence is fooling your shoes. The moon hides in trenches. If you go south, you'll drown eventually. You'll swell, you'll swivel, then flail and capsize. It's always stormy. If you go east, you'll survive. But scarcely, there's no food. The greens are dying. Substances rise and cover up the sky. What if you stay here? The hedge is full. The air blooms. We're shot with care and perfume of bare living as roses rustle, parrots mass in yonder. I could take your arm. Nothing banishes sorrow, but that's no matter. How root lives with skin is the argument. There's always more where apricots fall and lemons are flush where you can almost believe, though that's not enough. It's what is more certain, like a sun, like a phase, like a trice, a sudden brush of direction. To dream of escape is to form up the real and open your eyes as if, as if it was, again, morning. That's such a wonderful poem, and that really does that thing of kind of twisting into, um, into the present Yes, well, that was certainly um, the intention of what I was doing. And 
I wanted to start off with that idea of simple directionality and, you know, that's the way we tend to think North, South, East, West. I mean, they're not particular um, comments on Australia as such. It, uh, it's, it is more of a, a symbolic idea, although it is probably greener over on the West Coast, uh, East Coast. Sorry. Um, I was also thinking, thinking of direction Sorry? as t I was also thinking of direction in a time sense as well as a, a space sense. Yes. 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 And there's certainly that element um, in it as well. But um, it was also, as you say, okay. But you know, I'm here, mm -hmm. um, and there's a we. Um, so there's implied relationship, and there's an implied particular place. Where you know, you know, if, even if you think of a garden, and of course, again, a garden's a sort of familiar symbolic trope in you know poetry, etc., etc. But why not play with that idea? Um, and also, it relates to, although we've actually changed our garden around in the last year or so, but it relates to a particular garden um, where things you know bloom and die, um, you know, and there are cycles, and that's what it's about. And that's what we're all engaged in, you know. Um, we're all living, but we're all going to die one day, just like Moses and Romans. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. And I suppose I also wanted to acknowledge, um, you yeah, know, that roses and lemons and apricots aren't native to this place, but, you know, they're still the things that, are, that happen to be there um, for good or ill. Um, um, I don't know if that comes across in the poem, but there is that sense in there, at least in my thinking. Yes, and and talking about appropriation <laughs> or appropriative, <laughs> um, a, a lot of the book does do some appropriative procedures. So um, in your ah. case, from yourself, <laughs> where you yeah. sample um, a lot of poems from your own older work and then transform those poems. Talk mm. to me about what drew you to doing that. You, you do quite a bit of it in this book. Yes, there is actually, um, and... Sometimes I ask myself, why did I do that? But I, a couple of years ago, I was, for some reason or another, drawn back to think about my older work. And and as you say, a lot of what I've done has changed over the years, the way I've approached writing and the sorts of things I write about. Although there are, interestingly, um, some similarities as well, as you'd expect, I guess. And I thought, well, what if I rewrote this book now? And I thought, well, I'm not going to do that. Why would I? But then I, I was, I guess it was, it started just as a, a, you know, a thought experiment. What could I draw out of the, um, simply the words that were in my first book and could I still make poems, different poems out of them. So I, I did quite a lot of that and a lot of it I put away for a while but some of them actually seem to actually work quite well as poems rather than just thought experiments. Um, and I guess it was an odd, odd way of, but an okay way of acknowledging where I'd been um, and what that might mean now to look back at it, um, to actually just look at words as building blocks as much as um, phrases and sentences and lines. So, yeah. Mm. I don't at know least, that, um, at least you know, I mean, um, 
one of the other experiments was a slightly different one, but that was the main source of what I tried to do. And at least when you're appropriating from yourself, you know there won't be any um, legal action. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I haven't had a letter from my old self um, legal right. team. Um, it would be worth it know. if you did. Yes. Um, so what the, I want to get yeah. you, we're, we're running out of time, but I would love to get you to just read one more poem before we finish up, and one that, that does that, which is um, Edge, Edge Against Sign, which is page 33. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I've just, um, I'm sort of juggling the phone. And, ah, here we go. Yeah, just got it now. Okay. Edge Against Sign. My life is about letters against rust around the garden and weeds at the tips of your fingers below the horizon beyond midnight roar for the magic ring from the poster in the right-hand pocket into small grottos of sweet biscuits like blazes of tourism and local fashion on a gum leaf out flat over a small round table round the side through shattered glass to rocky outcrops under freeway pylons up into the valley with feet with friends with insects up in the building under noise towards the open doorway through the smallest lens round the lit-up tank over a guitar case out into universes on the table of used plates like something I dreamed into silent gullies, drains, dumping grounds, in a place, in a room, in wires from dark green hollows. For a second, down by the harbour behind its dull red wall at the centre, above a police car, at the corner, at edge against sign, breaking, being wide awake, after death perhaps. In some ways, appropriating from the past in the way that you've done here is almost like a kind of collaboration, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Um, and that poem in particular, I had a message. If you'll notice that um, virtually every phrase except the first one um, are, are prepositional phrases mm. and they work from A through to about W and then back down to A again. So I wanted to get this sense of the journey through the old poem done in a different way in the new poem um, and prepositional because a lot of what Brink is about is about placing in the broader sense of the way prepositions do. I mean, they don't do it always literally. Um, so that was kind of um, a method, but I had to really work at it to get it to... The, uh, the poem itself and not, as I say, just a, an experiment. Mm. Yes, and I think if you hadn't not notated it in the back, only the most uh, observant readers <laughs> would have picked it up probably that it was a, a reference, although there are echoes. It's a, almost a kind of beautiful echo that runs through it to, you know, to this previous piece. Oh, mm. oh thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, at least for some people there's an echo and for other people... Surely it just doesn't matter. It's the poem itself there on the page mm. doing the work that it does. Yes. So um, you're, we're almost out of time, but you have mentioned in the past, speaking of collaboration, that it, it is the way of the poet. <laughs> so there's collaboration, <laughs> of course, collaboration with yourself and your previous work um, and, and lots of collaboration through Brink, you know, with Freud, <laughs> um, Carlos yes. Ginsberg, Catullus. You know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of collaboration with, with other writers. And I guess that's mm -hmm. one of the joy of the forms is that poetry lends itself to that kind of creative play. 
Um, is that yes. something you want to explore more? Do you think in future works you'll continue to do that kind of um, play? Um, yes, I, I think, um, you know, I think it's very productive. And, and it's also, um, to an extent, humbling that, um, you know, it's not just you, the, you know, this one person here writing, but, um, I mean, all of the language, you know, is um, has been built up over thousands of years um, and people have used it in very similar ways or quite different ways. Um, and so you're always playing backwards and forwards between what other people say, um, what they've written, what you hear them say and do. And, um, you know, I don't think that that's ever going to go away in what I do. And from time to time I've, um, you know, literally collaborated with other poets to write things, although not much, and I wouldn't mind doing more of it, but it's not something that you can just bowl up to someone and say, oh, yeah, we should write a poem together. Um, but occasionally it happens. So, um, And, in fact, there is... Um, 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 uh, yeah, a poem that will appear in the new book, which actually is my half of a collaboration I did with another poet. So there's the collaborative poem that we did that's out there in his book, and then there'll be my sort of reworking of the bit that I did. And that's an interesting process because it means that the words can exist as poems, but different kinds of poems in different places. Mm. And why not? Yes, absolutely. And, and with different readers, and that in itself, I guess, mm. is a kind of collaboration. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when, when is, that, is that already um, kind of in hand? Um, it's the, the, the new book's in hand, um, so it should be making an appearance later in the year. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's, um, it's on its way. <laughs> well, we'll look out for that. Um, that is unfortunately all we have time for today. It always goes so fast. Um, Jill, thank you so yeah. much for talking with us, and um, bye for now. Yes, thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for um, conducting the interview with me. It was wonderful.